Mesdames et Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello, fans of Shuklistan, and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello, how are you? I have been watching FINA World Championships. Oh. And you know what? This is really the first time I've super paid attention to the Swimming World Championships, and it is so much fun. It is just as much fun as watching swimming in the Olympics. And you get to see, since we just saw them, it, it feels like yesterday, but it was quite a while ago. And a lot of the names are the same and a lot of the players are the same. So it's been a lot of fun. I feel like I know what I'm doing when I'm watching this because <laughs> we just had Tokyo 2020 slash 21. So a lot of these races are the same. So Swimming never gets old. Oh, and it's got your pal Rowdy Gaines announcing here. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I get extra time with Rowdy, which is never a bad thing. <laughs> Can you imagine having him over for dinner? Oh, my God, these potatoes are great. <laughs> we have an interesting follow up from episode 239, which is when we talked about legacy and the IOC's venue legacy report. So if you haven't heard that, go back and listen, because it's, it's interesting to see what's happened to different venues from the entire history of the Olympics. And we immediately noticed in the report that the nineteen sixty Winter Games, which were in California, were just called 1960, because the name of the location in California has changed since the original name is a Native American slur. So the area has changed its name. But the Olympics hasn't quite figured out what to do, because if you go to olympics.com, it still has the original place name. Yeah, it's a touchy situation because at the time it had that name. So it was 1960 with that name. So you can't erase history, but we don't want to continue to use the name because it is considered offensive. So we want to move with the times. So I see where the Olympics is having trouble saying can't erase the history that's what it was called at the time but we don't want to continue using it in updated reports and publications so i totally get their dilemma because we have so many of these dilemmas throughout society and this is just an interesting very small example of respecting history yet not perpetuating offensive or racist terms so we feel you, Olympics. We we get it. This is not a simple answer. But it will be interesting to see how they manage it going forward. Or is this something they're going to continue to use? Or is it like, oh, we have an oversight here. We missed you know, Because, of course, once you change one thing, it's in 25 other places that you didn't even think about. So maybe that's also an element as well. How, and I don't know the answer to this, how is the NFL handling it with the Washington football team? Obviously they have a new name, but what are they doing with historical records? It's the exact same problem, even down to the same ethnic group that you're offending. So it's, it's tricky and difficult. And I, I guess 
we've made the decision not to use the term without even really talking about it. We just, that's what we're comfortable with. And yet everyone's going to fall down a little differently on this one. So it'll be interesting. Uh, you know, what else is interesting is our book this month. Book Club Claire is back to discuss Driven to Ride, the true story of an elite athlete who rebuilt his leg, his life, and his career by two-time Paralympian Mike Schultz. In Pyeongchang, Mike, he won gold in snowboard cross and silver in banked slalom. In Beijing, he won silver in snowboard cross. The book tells the story of Mike's injury and his journey to the Paralympics. Take a listen. Claire, welcome back. We are talking Driven to Ride by Mike Schultz. What do you got for us? I've got a story about a Paralympian, something we haven't done yet. I'm very excited to talk about this with you because I do think that a biography of a Paralympian is a little different from what we've read about our biographies with Olympians. This was just published a couple of months ago. So I wanted to get your overall thoughts because it is so relevant and I read it during the Paralympics. So first of all, initial thoughts from you guys. What'd you think of the book? I enjoyed parts of it. I really liked when he was talking about the Paralympics and the training and the lead up since we were just there. And that gave it a lot more dimension and story. I really wished he had written it with his wife. Oh, yeah, that would have been really, better. He mentions a lot of times Sarah thought this or Sarah did this. And I almost wanted to hear from her because I think in many ways it was their story. And I wish she had had a voice of her own, but she was really busy. So I don't know if she had time to write a book. <laughs> I, I thought it was a better than average athlete, memoir, biography, autobiography, whatever you want to call it. Near the end, I got tired. I got the impression of how much people like Mike in his sporting worlds. And because I did see him compete at Beijing and they were all excited about him, Monster Mike, and he got his silver medal. He was overjoyed. He was so happy. And you could just see like the good energy off of him. You could see that throughout this book. He tried to maintain that positive energy. But to the extent that he dismissed the hard stuff a little bit too much, where it was just kind of like throwaway sentences. Oh, Sarah was getting migraines. What? Oh, you know, we have all these medical bills and we have horses. What? <laughs> and just there were a lot of things that I feel like he glossed over the hard bits. He did he did some a little bit more reflection than we've seen in other books by athletes, but it was almost travel loggy in a way. And it also felt to me by the end, especially by the end, I felt really bad for his co-author, Matt Higgins, because I really felt by the end the deal was Matt interviews you for like 10 hours and you give him like your calendar of what you did over the last 20 years. And then Matt goes away and he writes this for you. And then you, you work on editing it together. And what happened was by the end, Mike's telling all these stories that have nothing to do with things that would propel the plot or tell more about his knee. I, I mean, what really stuck out to me was near the, the end when he's training for the Paralympics and they're in Oregon, I believe the team is in Oregon. And they go on this long hike for no reason. It wasn't, it wasn't a great story. And you just know that I, I could just picture the author and Mike 
jabbering and Mike saying, oh man, that hike was the best. We shouldn't have gone, but we just kept going. The waterfalls were right there. We kept going. We were making these Sasquatch videos. They were hilarious, dog. And Brenna Huckabee was doing handstands in the river on the stones. And, you know, by the end, all of our stumps had sores all over them because they were getting, they're rubbing with the prosthetics. I didn't understand the point of that, but I also felt like, oh, this is the material that the author had to work with. And we're getting to a point where if you poked him and go, "Uh, I need some other info. We talked for so long, man. Why don't you have this? That's the, the feeling I got by the end. Lots of name dropping. A lot of got really repetitive at the end. It could have been like a good 35 pages shorter. But I bet they had like, well, this will be a 235 page book. Or probably a 250 page book that got cut down to 235. But... there got to be a lot of name dropping and it got to be a little too glossed over and a too, little too neat for all of the things that happened. I remember, Claire, when we were talking about it, you, it took a long time to get to the Paralympic part. And I, I was agree. like when I read them, like, oh, I see what Claire's talking about because it takes a long time to get to the Paralympics aspect of it. And I thought that was a lot more interesting than the snow cross. Maybe that's because this is what we do, but the snow cross just seemed kind of repetitive and I'm not into snowmobiling and dirt bike racing. I thought a lot of the Team USA information was so interesting how it works. And it was very well presented. You know, you were saying it's better than average. That I thought was very above average in terms of what is it like working with Team USA, what happens when you're on the national team? The whole idea of his health insurance, and he's got to compete once every year to keep that. Some of those little tidbits about being on Team USA, and again, that's our interest. But I thought it was the best part of the book when he got to the Paralympics because you had a lot propelling the story. The training for the Paralympics, competing at the Paralympics, going through all of that really pushed it forward in a way that some of those motocross and snowcross things didn't. And I also got very confused about how much time had passed. And I think because of that, and speaking of time, was anyone else shocked he was in the hospital for two weeks after for his leg amputation? Home by Christmas. I know. He he was in the hospital for two weeks. And they're like, okay, off you go. And I'm, I was like, doesn't he get to go to rehab? Doesn't he get some visiting nurse something I was shocked by that I think reading a Paralympic book is going to be a little different than an Olympic book because for the Olympics I'm thinking of like Shirley Babishoff to start where they become a swimmer when they're very young and you just progress with them through swimming all the way through for Mike Schultz being a Paralympian being in, in the Olympics period was never in the picture for him early on he loved BMX. He loved snowmobiling. So he had to make sure that that was a majority of his story because even after he got his leg amputated, he found ways to make snowcross and BMX racing work for him. And doing snowboard cross was the last thing on his mind. It was only because of his company, Biodep, and the prosthetics that he was making, did he ever even fathom getting into p- the Paralympics with snowboard? It took, what, 12 chapters for him to get on a snowboard? So I would say if you're going to read a Paralympic book, be prepared for that because, yes, their story is going to have to take a left turn somewhere because of the circumstances that are going to be around these. So just be prepared for that. If you are 
looking to get a snowboard book, this is not the book for you. If you like BMX or snowmobiling, this is the book for you because he talks about it a ton and he talks about the different circuits and he talks about the X Games. I thought that was very interesting because I was very unaware of these kinds of things, that they had an adaptability competition in the X Games. I didn't realize that they had started doing that. Uh, so I was given a lot more information that way. That's what I enjoyed about this. And I, it was nice to get a different perspective. But I can understand your points as well on, on things that could have been adjusted. It was very interesting how there's all of these niche activities, you know, snowmobile racing that probably are very regional, kind of small, and yet people devote their entire lives to it. I mean, his and his wife's life was based on the rhythm of dirt bikes in the summer, snowmobiles in the winter, and this whole circuit of races that I had no idea even existed. And I'm sure there's a lot of niche activities that have a lot of money floating around in them. Yeah, and he's making money because I only knew him as a Paralympian. I didn't know how big he was in the world of X Games type activities. And that that was interesting. And I mean, there were, I don't want to harsh on the book's groove a lot because there was a lot of interesting details. I saw a world I didn't know anything about. I just thought it could have been a little bit, a little less name droppy. A little less, because literally near the end, there's one, there's a, if you open the book, there's a, on the left side, it says one thing about the course. It's one of the courses are going to go down and mentioning this one guy. And then the next page, almost the exact same sentence is about the course. And like, oh, wow, we are really stretching here. But at the same time, yes, didn't know anything about the health insurance. Didn't know like, oh, we have to travel as a team kind of thing that he was be, would be gone all this time. And you wonder if things have changed since then as Paralympians change it. Yeah. Yeah. And how, well, and that, and of course, like his book ends after, basically after Pyeongchang. So we don't quite know, but it was just, that kind of element was interesting to find out. And I almost wish we had more of those details. And maybe that's because we are like a How Stuff Works podcast and less of the name dropping type things. I did really enjoy when he brought in Sarah to the conversation, his wife, because he wasn't against bringing her in and showing the flaws that he had and the struggles that she had working with him. And I was very thankful for that because one of the first things he describes about her was her rear end in the tight pants. And I went, oh, it's going to be one of those books, but it got better. <laughs> but you got to figure he was expressing what his 16-year-old boy self would have noticed about 16-year-old Sarah's self, which I laughed at just being the parent of a teenager going, yeah, that's what you notice first. And yet then he continued to describe her and really make her a fully fleshed character and their conversations change as the book goes along and you see them growing up because the book starts... I mean, the first time he talks about them, they're supposed to be 16 years old. And then obviously his accident, he was in his mid-20s. And by the end of the book, he's in his late 30s. And you you see them both changing, which is nice. It wasn't static. So I think that goes back to what you said, Jill, about it being a little better than average, that there mm -hmm. was some dynamics in the relationship. Right. And I love your idea of having them do the book together because... Boy, man, I don't want to say she's a saint because he does seem like a very, he seems like a good, fun guy. But 
the amount of work and support it takes for a person to be there even for somebody who does this athletic endeavor type thing, anything like that. It just that kind of support is really honorable, I think might be the word. But it's just what a tribute to have somebody who gives you such support in your life. And I, you could tell how much they loved each other. But I wanted to see more of that shown and not told. Agreed. And I think that was, I think that's the biggest part of the problem of the book is there's, there's a lot of telling and not showing. A lot of sentences of I was mad. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, I got a short fuse. I did not see that 100 pages ago. I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. And you know what was the one of the best, most interesting bits? The epilogue. When he was talking about how difficult it was to take a shower. And it's just like little moments like that, that helped me understand just how hard it is to be an amputee. And I wish we had more of that because it just seemed like, oh, I was in bed and I was struggling and I was angry. And, and then I found then somebody said, you should be a snowboarder. And bam, cool. You know what I mean? It just it wasn't neat. I don't want to say it was like too neat. But I don't think we got enough of those gritty details to really feel the way you feel about a lot of Paralympian stories. Maybe the wrong thing got fleshed out, his yeah. experiences on the circuit, instead of the struggles that he had as an amputee. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's the co-author's fault, in a way. One moment that they mentioned after his daughter Lauren is born, when he talks about after he took off his prosthetic at night, he couldn't get up and help with the baby. And that one time he was holding her with his prosthetic on, he lost his balance and almost went down with her. And that's exactly what you were pointing to about those gritty moments. And then I would have loved to hear, well, then what did Sarah think? Because she's a new mother. She's got this baby. She wants to share the baby, obviously, with the man she loves and with the baby's father. And yet as a mother, she's super protective of nothing happening to the child, but she doesn't want to get in the way of the father-daughter bond. And That was a very complex moment that he did include how painful that was and how scared Sarah was. And I agree. I wanted more of that. And I think a lot of Paralympians and I think the publishers and the co-authors really seem to want to make these feel good books and these Mm -hmm. feel good triumph stories. And yet I loved when he was talking about how he would sweat so much and have to undress and redress and that it's not easy to be a Paralympian. It's not easy to be an athlete with a disability. And I liked hearing them argue and fight about things and her being scared. And those were the best parts of the book to me. I thought the best part of the book for to me was the very beginning. He doesn't start with, I was born in Minnesota in 1982 or whatever, I think 1982. But he starts with the accident. It gets right into it. He has a bad jump snowmobiling in a race lands on his foot wrong crack and when he talks about like slicing open his pants and the shh that came out i'm just like in my bed i'm just like oh i know what that is oh gross but you know he he is allowing you to really feel this is the worst pain you could ever feel and i thought that was a great way to start and just inserting childhood memories here and there that were needed I thought really helped the book and it started the book off really strong. There were parts in the middle where I felt like, yeah, it was getting too repetitive. Okay, we're in 
now we're in the X Games of 2012. Now we're in the X Games of 2013, and we were just there like three pages ago. But so I can understand where that was coming from. But I do think the beginning and the end definitely were, were the strongest for me because it it was directly affected with the uh, what he became as a Paralympian now these days. Did you get a sense in that accident that he may have lost his leg because his care was bad? I wouldn't be surprised if that was part of it because, you know, you're up in northern Michigan, which I have been in many times. I know how small it is, very remote. The fact that he went all the way from Ironwood, Michigan, all the way to Duluth, that's that's not a short distance. So that's very surprising. So, yeah, I do think that could have been part of it. It just took forever. Things were not probably done as well as they could have if he had been in, like, downtown Chicago. Right. And even Duluth, I don't think you probably have an orthopedic specialist with, with that have seen a lot of these kind of things. And then again, when he had his heel injury, his initial care was very bad. It felt like bad care came up, bad health care came up over and over again in his story, which is surprising because Sarah is a nurse. And he did eventually, here and there, have really good doctors. But there seemed to be him not wanting to say, you know, sometimes doctors are terrible or sometimes this hospital was really bad. And yet there was a running theme in that throughout, which was very upsetting. And and I wouldn't be surprised if that's not uncommon. Very true. The prosthetic people, though, were amazing. Those guys are amazing. Yeah, and he develops his company. I mean, that that whole thing was. So, did you want to see blueprints? Because I wanted to see the well, blueprints. I also wanted more of the. Oh, I have a bunch of racers at this race I'm racing in who have my my prosthetics, and I have to sit down and fine tune them before the races. And that I wanted to get again. That was a told not shown moment where you could say, "Oh, we only have." two hours before the race and I've got five knees to tune up what goes into that and it was so interesting to hear him talk about kind of just working out the issues with trying to build the leg that would work well for sports and that was that was really cool yeah I found the prosthetic talk so interesting because it is it's so foreign for us none of us use prosthetics and I would think for most readers they're not familiar. You know, we, we've all seen it, but how does it actually work in the sleeve and the pieces? And, and he did do a good job talking about why the walking leg didn't work for sports and why his, what he was trying to do. But I did, I kind of wanted a centerfold of all the drawings (laughs) just to see what the differences were. You know, I, I agree. I wanted more of those pieces. I thought it was really funny when he was talking about the Versa foot which struck me as really funny when he had to change it when he was talking about plurals and it was the verse of feet. I don't know why that struck me as funny. But then he kind of shaded Amy Purdy about only using one verse of foot. He, he did. And I, I didn't like that. I actually like that because I felt like I saw his personality. Like that's him as a businessman. Like you'd be racing much better if you used two of my feet. But what do I know? I'm only the inventor of this. And give him a lot of credit. He did not go to college. 
he's working on a high school education and is able to come up with blueprints for this and develop it, work with he and I'm sure that his connections in BMX and snowmobiling helped him to get the input that he needed, but he soaked up information, was able to channel it into something that worked. And it's been 14 years and his products are everywhere now. This is not something that, you know, he he uses exclusively, but he's made it marketable throughout the world and and little did I remember, but 2011 is like part of the war in Afghanistan, the Iraq war. Soldiers are dealing with amputations right and left. So the demand for his prosthetics was very high at the time. It did, he did mention that over the 2010s, it did decrease, but there's still demand. And I really think that it's incredible how he was able to make this work for himself first and then realize how many other people could benefit from it. I thought that was a great part of the story when he went over to Germany and was working with veterans and, and uh, them seeing how, okay, this guy is pretty cool and he's working on one leg and I can do it too. So I, I appreciated that very much because it's not something I'm used to. Something I noticed when we talk about that he's very popular in the adaptive sport world, it was clear throughout the book he's very good at working with other people that he takes, you were saying he soaks the information in, his ability to take criticism about this and to say, I don't have the skill, I need help here, is a real skill. I mean, that's a an ability that I think led to the success of BioDapt because a, an athlete could say, oh, okay, this piece doesn't work for me. Can you make it looser? Can you make it tighter? It needs to be taller or shorter. And he would just work with that. It wasn't, hey, what, what do you think you're doing? That's my baby leg. It was very collaborative, which would then make him popular because if you say, I need this help, and he's like, oh yeah, we can make this work. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and praise to tinkering. Maybe he went to high school that had really good shop classes and that helped, but also living in a family where tinkering was praised and learning how to take stuff apart and put it together and fix things. That's such a big skill and look I mean, I'm sure he never, ever thought that he'd be, this is his company and this is what he'd be doing with his life. Something that some school somewhere has been trying to promote through their STEM program is something that naturally came to him through just his environment around him. I think that's pretty great. It shows, it shows that if people are willing to do something like that, you don't hinder that interest. You help it to grow and to, and to foster and, and I love that his family was okay with it, even when he went into racing and things like that. They knew that he had potential in these kinds of things. And it shows, I mean, in allowing someone to become very successful. Let's talk about the Paralympics a little bit. This is Pyeongchang 2018, so we had to set our clocks back four years. So we kind of had to take away all of the COVID restrictions, all of the masking and all of that, and just think of what it was like four years ago. What did you think about his experience and his, in I want to talk about his interest in the Paralympics because even back then, four years ago, Paralympics were not as big as they are now. Did you think that his mindset nowadays it affected how, what he was thinking back then? Like he's like, oh, I can be a Paralympian. But four years ago or six years ago, was he really thinking about that? Or was he just like, oh, this is another way that I could maybe do it. You get what I'm talking about? I do. And I, I think he does a good job in the book where 
it slowly dawns on him that this is a big deal. First, it's being a part of Team USA and then going to the training camps and traveling and the World Cups. And it's not all of a sudden, oh, I'm going to be a Paralympian. It's, oh, wait a second. This is a big deal. And he has that conversation with Sarah where they sit down and say, okay, are you going to do this for real? Because you cannot keep playing around with all these different things. If you're going to commit, you're going to commit. And him realizing that being a Paralympian requires that level of commitment, that everything else needs to be second. So I thought he did a good job of revealing it slowly to himself. But he can't set the clock back. He can't take away that moment in his head when he was the flag bearer and how much that meant to him. And that when he was writing this, he was making the run for, he had made that decision to push to 2022. And it's all sort of filtering in. But yeah, I think it was like everyone kind of figures it out as they're going along. Did you remember the bungee cord? Because we talked about the bungee cord story. I, I, I vaguely remembered that, but it was interesting. I mean, how he trained and trained starts at home and just drilled them at home. And it was like, I mean, like the anybody who just gets really intense into training and does build that, let me build a course at home. Let me do this and let me have this close by so it's a lot easier to train. I, I just thought that was really interesting and helped him adapt to that very strange circumstance oh and it was warm there too i had forgotten about that and like oh man you have to wonder at some point will they need to definitely move the olympics back and you don't go into february olympics because february is paralympic month because we can't go into march anymore and have better conditions and they had almost the same exact issue that we experienced where they have the two really warm days And then everything refroze when I went up to Bank Slalom and everything had refrozen. And it was basically the exact same thing happened at Pyeongchang. They had two spring days and then everything dropped and it was a sheet of ice. And I had the same reaction like, oh, we we have seen this movie before and we did not like the ending. (laughs) But I think that I didn't get a chance. I think in our Pyeongchang Paralympics show, we talk about the bungee cord. Oh, interesting. Because you definitely watch that race because you're such a snow a snowcross fan. And I think you tell that story. So now I got to go back oh, and re-listen oh, and see if oh, we right. if we do that. <laughs> I know we talked about it. I just don't know if it made the show or not because I was reading that saying, oh, the bungee cord. Jill told me the story of the bungee cord. And that's what's starting to happen when we're getting to these more recent events. We're now crossing it back again into personal memory, which is a lot of fun. Speaking of personal memory, he was talking about being in Colorado in the early 2010s. I'm going, I was in Colorado during the early 2010s. He talks about going into a cabin or the apartment condo where his buddies are and all the ski equipment is just strewn everywhere. I could literally smell that because I have so so much experience with that. He mentions going to Breckenridge and I'm just like, oh, I love Breckenridge. That was my home base when I lived in Colorado and I was going to go ski. Was I went to Breckenridge and I've just these longing pains because I haven't been back since 2016. And yeah, very much resurrecting personal memories, personal smells, not all good smells, but still some good smell, some uh, good memories there. 
I thought there was an interesting difference in ages between the competitors that he was going up against at the Paralympics because they were doing that training run. I think he was doing it with, I want to say Noah Elliott. And he kind of is very competitive in the training run. And Elliott just says, dude, this is just snowboarding, chill. And I think there is a big age gap because he is a type A, this is more than snowboarding, this is life, this is winning a medal. And then you've got the the 20-somethings being like, chill out, dude. It's just snowboarding. And I, I, I love that because I can see where Mike Schultz is coming from. So I don't know if you noticed that or if you noticed any of the athletes that got mentioned here in this book. Oh, Chris Voss. That's Chris a name Voss. we said a lot. So that was fun to see him come on the scene. Him and uh, Brennan Huckabee, again, it was fun hearing her. You know, as I'm reading the book during the Paralympics, and then I'm going on to watch the Paralympics and I'm seeing names that I saw in the book or vice versa, where I see them on screen and then I read about them in the book. Man, if you want to have some fun, read an Olympic book during the Olympics or a Paralympic book during the Paralympics because, I don't know, it's like 4D or something. (laughs) (laughs) You get what I mean? (laughs) Well, final thoughts on the book? I think it was a good read. This is definitely kind of a quicker read. I think it's a really good book if you're getting into the Paralympics and you want to understand a little bit more about what they're about. It's kind of, especially from, from Mike's point of view, coming from another sports background, getting into the Paralympics, and you also get that bonus element of how prosthetics work because he builds them. So I enjoyed it. Not the best book, but not the worst book either. <laughs> Just ringing endorsement. But I'm really, and I'm also really, really glad we got a Paralympic book in because this was, it's a lot of fun to be able to start reading Paralympic stories too. So thank you, Claire. What are we reading next? The next book, actually, if you recall, last July, we interviewed Abdi Abdirman and he wrote a book called Abdi's World. And we talked to him personally, I believe that was like July 1st of 2021, if you want to go back and, and listen to that episode. And then his book has been published, and so we are going to read it for our summer reading, and hopefully you can pick up on it. He raced the 10,000 meters and the marathon, and he qualified for five different Olympics. So hopefully you can read it or listen to it, and looking forward to talking with you guys about it. Excellent. We are looking forward to that as well. So thank you so much, Claire, and we'll talk with you soon. See you soon. Thank you so much, Claire. You can follow Claire on Twitter at Cauldron Light. On Instagram, she is at Light the Cauldron. And she has a YouTube channel called CNAT, C space N-A-T, because she will be going to the World Athletics Championships in July, and she's going to upload photos and videos to her socials. So you'll be want to be sure to follow her. She's got some great seats. And I'm very excited to hear her report. What will be interesting to me is because I don't think Claire is a hugger. If she and Deanna Price collide, where does that fall down? I want to see what happens there. Uh, As we mentioned, next time we'll be reading the book Abdi's World, The Black Cactus on Life, Running, and Fun by Shukvastani Abdi Abdurrahman. Claire talked with Abdi about the book last year when we interviewed him for the show. Take a listen to his little preview. What led you to write this book about your life and your experiences? What led me to write this book about my life? You know, just 
I think it was a easy it was easy thing to do just because where I came from, what I've been through, you know, like a lot of people know me as Abdi, the runner, the outgoing guy. So I want people to get to know my life experience. You know, I'm from Somalia. How do I get here? Because we all have a different story, you know, when, when we end up coming to U.S., especially like these days when you have a lot of athletes. They take like to get a different path, but my path was, was different from a lot of the guys from May, from just from Lopez Lamont. So you just, I just want to share my story too. Everybody have a story. So and I thought my story was kind of a little bit interesting and unique. And also just making the five Olympics, just long jeopardy I have. And just, I want to share people of my journey of each Olympics because a lot of people see me making the teams, but it's not always as perfect as it looks inside as an athlete, but because people always see the finished product. So I just want to share the journey the highs, the lows, everything. So, and if I can also motivate someone who's going through a difficult time like I did, you know, it would be a great thing. So that's the reason I write the book. Do you think if the Olympics had taken place at the normal time, you would have written the book afterwards? Did the pandemic kind of get you into writing that book a little faster? Yeah, I don't think I would have been ready last year. So I think a pandemic, a lot of people start doing different things when the pandemic hit it because you have so much time on your hands. Just people were doing like a house improvement project. A lot of people were doing certain things. So you have to occupy yourself. So I think like the pandemic was a big part of me writing this book because I needed something to do at that time because everything, the whole world was shut down and we were going through the difficult time. So I just needed to keep myself busy. And I said, what a better time to do your book. And... Last year, and I said, I hope it's going to be ready by the Olympics. So that was the main goals. And that was part of my motivation to be honest. That's true. You broke up the book into parts, which is a little different from other books that we've read, biographies. You broke them up into different rings, culminating with your Olympics that you were take, that you were doing at that time. Was that your idea or who came up with it and, and how did that all come together? That was our idea, actually, me and my the publisher, Miles. We just didn't want to do like a normal book. You know, just at the end of the day, we have to be innovative. We have to do something different. Just And also, I, I thought like we have to break it down like each chapter. Instead of doing chapters, we were doing like each five Olympics. Just so it was both of us our idea. So we just discussed that. We said, let's be something different. And it's not, it's not going to be a usual book, but it's going to be, it will be more interesting. And people will be talking. And you're the second person asking me that question, actually. Now, are you ever going to come back and kind of finish off the book with your Tokyo ring or maybe maybe a Paris ring? I, maybe I'm stretching here, but are you ever going to come back and kind of finish off that last section or are you going to keep it the way it is? I sure like we, we might have a, like, you know, I didn't know, I've been this for I've been this force like a, so long. I've been over 20 20 years. So it's always there's so many stories that to be told. Just hopefully like I'm not. Just this part was just, this was like a part of like a, my life and also a journey of getting to the each Olympic. So, and there's always going to, we go, we're going to do like a, the second book, but it's going to be more about that part of a uh, business side of it. Because a lot of the runners, like these people, they don't know what the runners go through. Just so I'm under, still under contract with my shoe company. So it's a lot of stories that need to be told and people need to learn about it. And to make this, and also it's not a bad thing, just to make the sports better, you know, if people will listen to us. So. And also, you never know, Paris is not that far. I was only two years away after next year. So keeping my finger crossed one year out of time, next year will be 2020, 2013 will be almost like a year and a half later. We have the trial, so why not? 
I'm not counting myself. I'll just, but I'm taking one year at a time though. So I'm not looking like too. Well, at your age, nobody's counting you out at all, especially with the amazing marathon trials that you did last year. One final question. What was the one story that you were the most excited to share in this book? Ah, uh, the most story. I like it. Just my, my story was about my family. Just the, the, just for us coming to coming from Somalia, just uh, come from the civil war. Just and also we end up just coming to America. Just for me was just because like a lot of athletes these days they came here, they get scholarship, they they've been recruited. But for me, it was different path. Just for me, I I came from like a war-torn country, filled with my family, refugee camp, all the stuff that I've been through in life. And I wanted people to know that. And also that's what makes me tough too. So not giving up in life, not taking anything for granted. Well, thank you so much. I hope that our readers take advantage of the book. And thank you for sharing your story in this book. It's been very interesting to read. I really appreciate your work. Thank you. As a reminder, you can find our book club titles on bookshop.org slash shop slash flame alive pod. If you go through that link, anything you buy at bookshop.org will support the show financially, which is greatly appreciated. And you'll also be supporting independent booksellers. That sound means it's time for our history moment. All year long, we're looking back at Albertville 1992, as it is the 30th anniversary of those games. My turn for a story. And I actually want to talk about the Paralympics. Excellent. We haven't talked about those yet. This is the fifth winter Paralympics, which took place in Teague, Albertville. And to compare this to the Olympics, the fifth winter Olympics was Sam Moritz 1948. So it gives you a little perspective on how developed the Winter Paralympics are at this point. They were called Ting, and I hope I'm pronouncing this right. It's Tignes or Tigne, Albertville. Everything was in Tigne. Albertville was just there to use for marketing purposes. But these games were the first that paired the Winter Paralympics with the Winter Olympics. And this process started happening in 1985 when André Alberger, who was the president of the French Sport Federation for the Disabled, wrote to Michel Barnier, president of the French Olympic Bid Committee, and said, Hey, if you win the Olympic bid, how about you host the Paralympics too? And so 11 months later, Albertville won the bid. And about a month after that, Barnier said, Okay, we'll have the Paralympics too. And finalized everything in 1987. First time those two have paired. The fun part was the International Paralympic Committee were not thrilled about the proposed dates, which was March 25 to April 2. <laughs> That's a little late for snow. <laughs> We've talked about how how not snowy Beijing was and how hard it was to keep the, even the man-made snow on the ground in Beijing in March. So the IPC asked for the games to be held in January. Oh, before? Yes, before. So the para-athletes were actually not happy about that because January wasn't really a great time for them to compete. And of course, as you can imagine, the IOC was not too happy either and said, you are not going ahead of us. So that put the kibosh on that and the games were held back at their proposed dates. These games had 365 athletes, it split out 228 men and 77 women, representing 24 countries. They had 79 medal events in three sports. 
alpine skiing, cross-country skiing, and biathlon. And due to a lack of entries in suitable venues, no ice sports were held for these Paralympics. Interesting. Yeah. They did have some demonstration sports. They added alpine and Nordic skiing for intellectual impairments. And then biathlon added a visual impairment category. So, Which we know stuck around. Yes. Yes. The opening ceremony they held in front of the finish area for alpine at the alpine venue. So it was a pretty small and contained ceremony. The mascot for these games was Alpi, which was a mountain shaped in the form of a Grand Mat, which is a mountain in Massif de la Venois. The mountain is on a monoski, which symbolizes athleticism. And he has a snowy white top, then there's a little layer of green and a blue base, and those colors represent purity, hope, and nature. All courtesy of designer Vincent Thibault. The logo was designed by Jean-Michel Fallon, which is a bird with broken wings soaring over a mountain peak. So that symbolism reflects the abilities of the athletes in the games. Other notable, notable firsts. This was the first Paralympic event in France ever. This was the first time that an athlete's village was at a Winter Paralympics because previously they had been in hotels. And this was also the first time doping tests were at a winter game. Winter Paralympics. That is not a good development. (laughs) Because you only have tests when you think you're going to find results. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. A little bit more about the opening ceremony. I I did look for some video of this because I really wanted to see it. As I mentioned, the opening ceremony was held at the foot of the main competition piece at the uh, Alpine Ski Runs. And the countries entered the arena in French alphabetical order. And every 45 seconds, a paraglider in the country, colors of the country landed in the arena in front of the delegations. I really wanted to see that. That sounds so cool. That is some serious choreography and timing right and then they also had six hang gliders performing an acrobatics display which had been choreographed by american dancer danny ezralau to music by french composer michel colombier with a harmonica solo performed by belgian musician toots tielmans those harmonica solos were big in the 90s And President Francois Mitterrand opened the games. The Paralympic flame and cauldron was lit by French Nordic skier Luc Sabatier, helped by Fabrice Guy. And then at the end of the ceremony, they did a big balloon release to Ode to Joy, and the team delegations left the arena. So, for these games, top of the medal, the, the medal chart winners were USA, Germany, and the unified team. German alpine skier Reinhold Müller claimed four gold medals. His teammate Gerd Schonefelder and Frank Höfle each won three. And uh, Schonefelder was in alpine, Höfle was in biathlon and cross country. The USA's Nancy Gustafsson won three gold medals in alpine skiing. And then the unified team was led by Nikolai Ilyochenko, who won three gold medals in cross country. And Schoenfelder, we talked about during Beijing because he and Brian McKeever from Canada are now tied, if you remember, for the most Winter Paralympic medals ever. That is correct. Good memory. 
one a couple little tidbit or one little tidbit I thought was interesting because one of the things we other other things we talked about New Zealand during the Winter Olympics was that they won gold medals, right? This was the first gold medal in the Winter Olympics for New Zealand and pretty much any country in Oceania. But New Zealand started winning golds in the Winter Games at the Paralympics in 1992. Well, I actually, actually, I don't know that if, if this was the first games they did. New Zealand had a seven person team, all men, all alpine skiers, and Patrick Cooper won two golds. And it's one of the things that's interesting is that when you go to the New Zealand Paralympic team site, they number their Paralympians. So Patrick was Paralympian number 55, and they're now up to 228. Interesting. I like that. Because then. E- it really ties you into the history of the Paralympics. Yeah, because you can see, like, when I went to find who was the the most recent Paralympian, the numbers range so vastly from games to games because Paralympians do spend a longer time in the Paralympics, it seems. So you'll have right. Paralympians who do multiple games and just you'll, you'll have, like, number 228 on the same team as, like, 130. If they stick around enough games, like a Brian McKeever from Canada. That's right. Just can't seem to retire. Right. Or a Garrett Schoenfelder. Welcome to Shook. It's time to check in with our team, Keep the Flame Alive. These are our past guests of the show who are now citizens of our country, Shook Flastan. Slow week this week, but... Good news in the world of ice skating. I know everyone seems to be on vacation, so I'm seeing a lot of vacation pictures. But not on vacation. Charlie White and Merrill Davis will be inducted into the Michigan Sports Hall of Fame as part of the class of 2022. Hooray! We're getting some final reports out of the Tokyo 2020 Organizing Committee. The Kyoto News reports that its final budget and official report were re- were presented to the IOC. Final costs of the games were 1.42 trillion yen, which is about 10.5 billion U.S. dollars. This is double what they thought the games would cost in 2013 when they bid. However, over the years, they kept adjusting the the budget numbers and they thought in 2016 that they would be spending 1.5 trillion yen. So actually, the one, the 1.42 trillion yen doesn't look so bad. And this was also 29 billion yen lower than last December's forecast due to a number of reasons, including venue restoration work that cost less than expected. The coronavirus measures they had cost 38 billion yen. So it was still pretty pricey on that. How it breaks out, the organizing committee is paying 640 billion yen. Metropolitan government is going to pay 597 billion yen. And the central government will be paying 187 billion yen. So the government, i.e. the taxpayers, are really helping to finance these games. And as they put forth a bid 
to host the Winter Games in 2030, I, w I wonder if citizens will be a little unhappy knowing that they're going to be paying for Tokyo for a little while. And you can't blame it all on COVID-19. Yes, they lost money because of COVID-19 and they spent extra money, but double? I don't think so. Right. And they built so many new stadiums for these games. They did reuse a lot of stadiums, but they also built a lot. And we've talked extensively about this being one of the last games to be in this big building age. And it'll be interesting to see what happens with Paris 2024 because they have talked about extensive reuse or keeping their budget low. And we will see if that comes to fruition. So this means now that they're done with all their budgets and final reports, the organizing committee will be dissolved at the end of some legacy news, which is kind of nice. The Kyoto News said that the Japan Sport Council is setting up a subsidy program to help those municipalities who hosted foreign athletes continue to find ways to interact with those countries. And that program is planned to start in April 2023. We talked about this. They had all these host cities that were going to have host athletes in different nations so that they could train ahead of the games and acclimate to a new time zone if they needed to. And not all of those programs worked because of COVID and a bunch got scratched, but there were some did and they want to try to keep those relationships going, which I think is really cool. It makes sense. If you're going to put the effort in to develop these things, keep them. And the Japan News reports that there is going to be a commemorative event at National Stadium on July 23, marking the first anniversary of the opening of Tokyo 2020 Games. And if listener Corey goes, or maybe Roy Tomizawa, if you go and report back and let us know how it is, we would love to hear it. Well, I remember Kaori posting pictures of National Stadium and either her apartment or her office is right there. So she doesn't even have to get tickets. She can just look out her window. Hint, hint. Some interesting news from Beijing. China has turned the athlete villages into COVID quarantine camps. Ryan McMora and Nian Liu report in the Financial Times that hundreds of close contacts of cases have been put in all three villages, which are now being used as quarantine facilities, and some luxury hotels in the Zhangjiku zone are also being used as quarantine facilities. We talked about this when we talked about the Venue Legacy report from the IOC, how a lot of Torino's villages were so poorly made, nobody wanted them as apartments, so they were using them for refugee camps. I hope this isn't why these villages are being used as quarantine facilities, because they weren't built properly and can't be used as proper hotels or proper apartments, that they're actually getting nice apartments when you're being quarantined. Somebody in the article, we'll post the article, a link to it in the show notes, because somebody did say, oh, I have like a really great view of the ski jump facility and I have a couple TVs and it's just me here. It's kind of nice. But it does make me worry that there is no real legacy plan for these venues. And when we talked about Tokyo being moved, how one of the difficult parts was the athletes village to renegotiate with all of the people who had bought up apartments already. So the fact that 
there aren't people waiting to get into these that we know of to actually live in them, that worries me. So, so the hotels in Zhangjiakou and in Yangcheng would be seasonal. That could be. And I do know somebody who, uh, I talked with somebody who stayed in one of the hotels in near the ski jump facility who said it was pretty quickly finished off, so to speak, like taping up wallpaper and things like that. It had to get done. So I don't know if they're trying to finish those and that's why they're not necessarily being used right now. But we shall see. And hopefully the reporters on the ground can help keep these stories alive. Well, you know who won't be seeing these hotels again? Who? You and me. We are not <laughs> going back to the mountains of China. We already almost got trapped there once. <laughs> Some other news about the Beijing Games from the from inside the games. The IOC payout to the international federations is expected to be less than the Pyeongchang payout. And that's very important to a lot of these international federations because they do get funds distributed from the IOC. And that can be a significant portion of some of their budgets. Different international federations have alluded to the fact like, hey, we're not going to get as much money from the IOC this year. We have to tighten our budgets. So it's going to have a bit of a ripple on what international federations will be able to do and provide for this next quad. Well, we would like to give a big shout out to our Patreon patrons who keep our flame alive. If you appreciate the show, we would appreciate your financial support to keep us going. You can find out more about patronage at patreon.com slash flamealivepod. And if one-time support is more of your thing, you can find out more ways to support us at flamealivepod.com slash support. So that will do it for this week. If you know of a Paralympic or Olympic book that we should read for future book club episodes, let us know. You can email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com. Call or text us at 208-352-6348. That's 208-FLAME-IT. Our social handle is at flamealivepod. And be sure to join the Keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. Next week, we are going to learn what it takes to start a national governing body for a sport with skeleton athlete Shannon Galea. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive. <laughs>